0: We need to first accept that we have this desire, uh, I dare say call it a need, to predict what's going to happen next in a world where we very technically absolutely cannot. And if we can, we can only do so temporarily. So there's a sort of like inductive reasoning piece that we use inductive reasoning, but the problem with inductive reasoning is that, to be fair, and this is kind of like basic bitch philosophy here, but I'm going to say it anyway. My personal subjective world can't assume that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, but my interpersonal sort of transpersonal experience can due to just the history of, of the habits of the universe that humans before me have contributed to charting. And then humans after me will probably contribute to charting. And so there's that sort of like beyond me piece, but in terms of the individual subjective understanding of the self I would say that the symbolic esoteric is very much compatible with more, shall we say, analytical modes of understanding sort of the psychology. And then you have like the neurology and whatnot. Like when, once you get into these, um, the weeds of how things sort of work in terms of complexity, the symbolic esoteric references become more useful because they're seen for what they are representations of a complex reality and not reality itself so that is i guess the fundamental difference and integral people talk about this all the time and it's easily misunderstood i think that that transrationality is actually a really bad name for the concept but i didn't come up with it so it's not my problem <laughs>
1: Greetings, Future Fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 179 of the podcast that explores our place in time, which I liberally interpret to mean whatever the hell I want. I guess you could say that this is a show about orienting ourselves in a non-specifically n-dimensional phase space in which location, identity, attitude, And Transpersonal zeitgeist, perhaps Are all parts of what philosopher Ken Wilber calls a cosmic address How many of us really know our cosmic address? I mean, are we even in the neighborhood? And if you do know where you're located, do you know your neighbors? Superimpose that over the stamping and addressing of Christmas cards Preparing gifts... I suspect if one were to map my holiday gifting, you'd find a scale-free relationship, maybe a map of my own brain. If you're a skilled data visualizer, please talk to me. Let's uh, scheme in 2022. But at any rate, (laughs) today's episode is with Scout Leader Wiley, an amazing human being who somehow embodies... All three components of her own name. She is a scout, she is a leader, and she is wily. And we had an immensely fun conversation that my friend Mitch and then I spent an extraordinary amount of time editing to make it palatable. The amount of work that goes into this is prodigious, which is why I want to take a moment before we dive in to thank... Everybody that's been supporting the show on Patreon, including new supporters, Travis Strawn, Michael Cannon, Camilla Kalk, Jeff Willard, Alex Karabi, Benjamin Taylor, Ace Frazier, and Kate Cholewa. They say it takes a thousand true fans, in which case I am 22.6% of the way toward this show and all of the wonderful things that have sprung up around it being what I do for a living so thank you help (laughs) and thank you (laughs) thank you if you're new here patreon.com slash Michael Garfield is a cave of wonders but not the kind of you get trapped in by some weird sand tiger no trickery here I think of it maybe in terms of plumbing it's like I have this faucet art comes out of it, and music, writing, and they all mix together in a kind of holding pool before flowing over into other domains. And if I close the valve, then the whole thing backs up and explodes. So I can't do that, but I also don't want to ruin my neighbor's yard. So your support helps me create a kind of... Aquaponic permacultural structure in which all of the new ideas and inspirations can be safely integrated into something generative and full of joyous surprises. So yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did because we enjoyed it <laughs> like kind of obscenely much exploring the performance of expertise, the virtue of naivete, the holy work of being unfinished, speaking the unspeakable, comedians as gadflies, Hayoka Medicine, Astrology and the Enneagram and Tarot, and Hermes the Scientist versus Hermes the Communicator. How close to the street can you live and still have your own thoughts? The Decentralized Autonomous Organization for Science that could fund taboo research... Time binding and prediction and tarot and algorithmic policing, and how that's all kind of like related to one thing, ritual art, the value of boredom, and quite a bit more. Actually, Scout is wonderful. I'm honored to have her on the show. Give her a warm welcome and thank you for listening.
0: How are you? It's so nice to, like, meet you and stuff. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Given
1: geologically recent events, meaning not just the latest Facebook disclosures, but everything else that's been going on for Mm -hmm. years, our entire adult lives, I am Mm -hmm. really glad to connect with people that I know from Facebook over Mm -hmm. video calls or Mm -hmm. in person has stopped seeming like a real... Goal, uh, on some level, it's just like not going to happen. But yeah. the more I can quote unquote export my social graph, the better.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, I hear that. I'm pretty good. I I have a weird like sleep clock kind of thing. So I just woke up maybe like an hour ago.
1: Living the dream.
0: And yeah, and I am freezing because I I live in a weird room that weirdly doesn't have good air circulation in it when it's hot and then when it's cold it's like doesn't have great insulation so my excuse for wearing a sweater inside is very strong and i'm really excited i have no idea what we're gonna talk about so i guess we're gonna just <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to have a conversation, and I freaking love that so much, because I, I love your work, I love being a part of the Future Fossils group, I love the Complexity podcast, I love your art is super cool, your wife and kid are absolutely adorable, awesome. <laughs> i just like really stoked to be talking to you, so. Totally. I feel great
1: solidarity with you, based on what little I know of you from... Your, I'm sure it's actually quite a bit from your like amazingly articulate and candid social media posts and mm-hmm. you represent I think for me the completely uninhibited visionary freaky witchy thing that I also feel but cannot be mm-hmm. really in my life mm-hmm. and so like just to see somebody like taking it and running with it and kicking as much ass as you do was really inspiring like you're posting in some mm-hmm. integral group and saying really in- interesting things. And like for me, integral theory is something I studied in in grad school and then various dramas led to the cohort of people that I was interested in that stuff with and committing it to it full time, just mm-hmm. exploding. The tower fell, to put it in tarot terms, right? And suddenly it was mm-hmm. just like, what is this? We had like a diaspora of integral weirdos that had lost faith in the project and it's actually really cool to see people like Nora Bateson critiquing the very premises of adult developmental psychology and so on so i don't know it's just cool to see this thing that i had sort of once devoted myself to and then lost faith in but still frame the world in that way and then to see you coming up and just acting like a like an explosive magnetic thing it just seemed like you were like an enzyme or something for all of these amazing conversations about this stuff that i hadn't really been seeing happen for years and i don't know if that's actually true or like what might be behind the sort of algorithmic resurgence of this stuff in my media sphere but anyway so Mm -hmm. yeah total mad respect for you as well (laughs) yeah it's like it's nice to see somebody who who hasn't had it i don't know crushed out of them fucking just radiating (laughs) radiating this Yeah. so yeah
0: yeah thank you I think there's something to be said of I mean I guess I'm gonna toot my own horn for a little bit um if that's okay so I guess there's something to be said about um I'm gonna toot my own horn in the way that you've seen me normally toot my own horn which is by self-deprecating in like some a sort of like ironic way (laughs) um But yeah, there's something to be said about uh, not really knowing what you're talking about and talking about it anyway. There's certain, like, bravery, sort of foolish bravery that's necessary for that. And I feel like what I've kind of unconsciously been doing and more consciously been doing in the past couple of months as I've realized I've been doing it is as I learn, I just kind of talk about what I'm learning. And I think that there's something sort of strangely inviting about that to people especially who are older because i think as you get older you sort of internalize the belief or the sort of mindset that you are an elder or like so we live in like a very western culture and western culture has this thing where everyone's supposed to be an equal on the one side but then on the other side we have this false meritocracy that has a little bit of legitimacy to it but there's a lot of illegitimate sort of ways that it shows up where there's there's definitely a hierarchy but there's also this belief that like the individual is sacred and there's these sort of conflicting cultural narrative that we play with in america and places like that are similar industrially and monetarily i guess so to speak where um when you're older you kind of get this idea that Uh, it's sort of similar to the concept of what an elder is, but then you have this this hierarchical notion that you have nothing left to learn, or you need to perform a type of wisdom that makes you sort of better than or more intelligent than uh, people younger than you. And then I think that there's this sort of way of playing with the elder-younger kind of dynamic where there's mutual learning and there's like an interpenetrative nature to it that I think, and this is kind of more of like an indigenous concept, to be vague, um, <laughs> <laughs> that the younger generations exist to prepare their role within like the culture is to prepare the elders for death. They sort of play, they embody more of the trickster, the change of the culture. They um, are essentially there to ensure that the elders do not think that they are more important members of society. And then the elders exist to sort of anchor the younger generations to sort of, they give them something to change, something to grow from, something to integrate and incorporate into the what is emerging. And I think that we might not have that in the same way. As we did when I guess in pre-conventional social structures, but we still do have it in like our countercultural movements. When um, people write these these articles about how millennials versus boomers and Gen Z versus millennials, it's it's sort of like a woefully oversimplified synthesis or or. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Synthesis is not really the right word. It's more so like a um, they're trying to describe this phenomenon that is real in a way that doesn't really do it justice, so to speak. So I sort of forgot where I was going with that. I was talking about myself. (laughs) (laughs) All roads lead to Rome. Yeah. I think that there's something to be said about this kind of like thing that I do that I've noticed works really well, where I kind of am like playing with these concepts that I barely understand and trying to understand them by bringing people into the space of just play and nonsense. And it's almost like my ignorance is almost like a gift in that way, if that makes sense. It's kind of like inviting people to not take themselves that seriously. And I think when you learn something in grad school, the pros of that is that you get to fully immerse yourself in and embody it. And I think that I've seen you embody integral principles in a way that a lot of people on the internet just don't They don't. They just, they pretend, you know, they throw the colored code words around from Spiral Dynamics, kind of in this way where they're performing what you actually, I feel, are. And I've never seen you really use the lingo, but I've seen you embody the traits of what an integral um, sort of mind would look like, especially when you talk about stuff on the on the complexity podcast it's like very much giving people sort of voice and there's this interdisciplinary piece as well that you have there where you're kind of like inviting people to bring their their knowledge and then you go and you synthesize it and you bring your own and it's just really elegant the way that you sort of demonstrate it. So I think that we're kind of coming at the same thing from different angles and that that's pretty interesting. So
1: Totally. Uh first of all thanks for recognizing my game, I guess. Okay. Something that you said in there about the virtues of naivete. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good way. This is something that I brought up. I actually, this was the sort of thesis of the episode of complexity I did with Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West, because they were talking about disinformation and critical thinking. Mm. And the conversation came around to, well there always has to be somebody that can call bullshit. And yeah, the people, the younger people don't have as much invested in social finite game, right? To use the, the James Carse term, like you know this this sort of zero sum status larping crap that, you know, <laughs> that has dominated civilization. And so there's also this problem of expertise blindness, I think, that mm-hmm. once you get to know something really well, then you don't know, you don't remember what it's like not to know it. You have trouble communicating mm. it, and often that knowledge has been sort of compressed into mm. implicit, re- like muscle memory or something. So you can't, like, teach somebody yeah. to play the song. And, like, I feel like I got that job because I had committed myself for years to rejecting the lingo that made integral theory, an insider baseball conversation. Like I was like, (laughs) if this is something that has like footholds for people to understand and enrich themselves at any level in, in that sort of framing at, you know, wherever they happen to be in their lives, children or whatever, then why are we using this like jargon?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like a gatekeeping strategy. And I've spoken with a couple of friends with that are also in the integral community about the part of the theory that talks about how every sort of stage or every state has a shadow, or I guess a better word would be... <laughs> ironically, a better word, I think, would be pathology, even though that's kind of a judgmental sure. word, but whatever. Yeah. Um, and I was talking about, like, integral stage sort of thinks that it's hot shit so much that it almost forgets that there is a pathology that sort of goes with it. There's sort of dark side. There's a way to weaponize it. And people will very easily say, well, that's not the real version of the thing. You see this a lot in like political theory, that's not really leftism, that's not really communism, that's not real capitalism. And it's funny because it's like, no, it's definitely real. It's just it's the part that you don't really want to claim when you when you label yourself this thing, you don't want to encompass the darkness of it, which is kind of silly, really, because how are you supposed to Repair the darkness if you don't own the darkness, and there's definitely a sort of like a lofty, almost cruel kind of detachment that I think comes with the the strategic thinking and being able to digest cognitively higher levels of complexity. Will come with if you're putting all your resources towards solving this vast puzzle of how uh, systems and meta systems and meta meta systems all fit together especially when it comes after a stage that's highly emotionally sensitive, which they call the green stage or whatever, I feel like the risk there is detaching from the heart, so to speak, or detaching emotionally, detaching from empathy. And there's there's a risk when you have these tools that demonstrate a, a sort of hierarchy and then you come from a social structure where hierarchy is then linked to dominance and oppression and all of that. It's very difficult to use the the tools you have in an ethical way when you're kind of detached from empathy. And I think that a lot of integralists don't want to own that. They might lack empathy because the way that they sort of value strategy more than they do connection. I think that's a very real thing people are not owning.
1: Yeah, and for people who are unfamiliar with this sort of theoretical structure yeah. that we're discussing here, the idea being that the modern world is sort of instantiated in a mental structure and the pre-modern world and the the post-modern world. And I'm slowly not divorcing, but like sleeping in a separate bedroom from Mm -hmm. some of these formulations in terms of them being a successive, you know, transcend and include development cycle.
0: Yeah. Like a clear progression. Right. right. I mean, and
1: and I think that there's, you know, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to open the stage. Theory debate box here, but I, I do think that like a lot of the conversations I've been having lately add nuance to those thoughts. For example, mm-hmm. I just got off the horn with Chris Ryan for an episode about his book Civilized to Death, and mm-hmm. you know one of the things that's a like common in Ken Wilber's work is he's doing this thing where he's saying, oh yeah, we made these choices together. Like he's he's like deconstructing the War of the mm-hmm. Sexes. You know, and saying like, "Okay, patriarchy was something that men and women chose together because Mm -hmm. men and women both didn't want more miscarriages from doing heavy farm work." Mm -hmm. And it's like, "Okay, cool, that's useful, sort of, in thinking about like Mm -hmm. the the pressure of the environment on you know, and like the way it constrains our decisions." But I was like talking to Chris Ryan, and Chris Ryan took it even a step further and was like. Actually, the whole issue of civilization and agriculture seems to have been that we optimized for the wrong thing as a way of surviving a, an especially austere period of climate change. Because you see agriculture pop up all over the world at the same time, like specifically like mm-hmm. irrigation, planting, plowed rows it comes up all at the same time. So it's not an idea that spread. It's a hole that everyone fell into at the same time, because Mm -hmm. there were years that things were unusually lush and fertile. And so people, like human populations grew to a point where they had to start settling down and settling happened before farming, you know, and so he goes Mm -hmm. into like Gobekli Tepe and, and these other ancient sites that provide evidence for this, that we were building these megalithic structures before we were actually camped around them. and then things got hard and suddenly we were like, all right, how do we make the best of a bad situation? And so I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is that once you add the fact that like humans are scaffolded and that so much of what we are and the way that we think and the complexity of our mental structures and so on is contingent on things like the availability of nutrients. Or, you know, the social contract that we have with a hierarchical society and whatever its concerns are, mm-hmm. then like there's there's great confusion generally in the conversation. I think there still is about the relationship between cultural evolution and personal mm-hmm. development and Ken explicitly conflated those and basically took Ernst Haeckel's famous statement that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny that the development of the organism is like a rerun in miniature of its entire evolutionary branch Mm -hmm. and that ken was basically saying the same thing that the environment creates a sort of container for you to grow into and that the bar of what constitutes adulthood keeps going up but that's clearly not true
0: i think it's more his interpretation of certain things I feel like, and this is just completely like a, I don't really have evidence for this. This is more of just a random intuitive droplet of belief or whatever that comes from, comes from me and reading Wilbur is that I get the impression a lot of the time that he's reasoning from the conclusion that things fit together in a certain way. And he's perhaps in believing already that they fit together I I would go so far as to say he's right that they fit together. However, the way in which he believes they fit together, I feel like sometimes blind has blinded him to allowing them to reveal the way in which they fit together. Mm. So, it's like he assumes that things fit together in a specific way, and then he takes all these different theories together and strings them together based on what he thinks pairs well together, based on what his personal belief structures are about reality and... And metaphysics, you know, so his own personal beliefs about the metaphysical nature of things, I think, were uh, unconsciously motivating him to see things a certain way. And I think that you kind of see this in when he has, like, talks more recently, because he's older now and he's like, I don't know, but his more recent talks, you can kind of see, you can kind of see him doing that, and taking things, new things, and fitting them into his previously determined yeah. box of integral theory, and here's how integral theory works, and it's that thing we kind of we kind of talked about slightly earlier, where it's like, the more you know about something, the more you have to lose if it's wrong, kind of, and it's, it's funny, because it's like, that's kind of why we have these sort of weirdly rigorous standards for what we determine is scientifically true, that perhaps need to start being applied to places outside of science. Um, but in a way that sort of still respects the, like I was talking to Layman Pascal uh, the other day. Wait, what day is it? Two days ago on my wide mind Wednesdays kind of podcast thing. It's not really a podcast, but about the irrational sort of elements of being and how do we relate to them in a way, whereas, like, modern science has seen them as sort of, like, a thing to move out of the way in order to get the thing that is more important. How do we properly contextualize that irrationality? And I think when we don't... This is sort of a, a leap from what I was just talking about, but when we don't find a way to relate to that, it ends up just getting in the way of the thing that we pushed it out of the way to get to anyway. Because it's not like it goes away, it just... It's like we're, we're essentially just putting blinders on. We're not actually destroying what's in the way. And what I think is interesting about stuff like spiral dynamics and stage theory and the, the quadrants and whatnot is that it's interestingly modernist. The idea that like the spiral sort of thing is like a linear progression of like things get better as time goes on. And that's kind of like bled into the integral space, like that belief, even though it's like, it's not necessarily true in the sense that as we get old, like, if you think about a human being, as a a human being gets older, parts of our body start to break down. Complex systems have a tendency to be weaker as they become more complex, because there's more, more relationships that are needed to maintain. And there's more energy that's needed in order to maintain the existence of a complex system. So is that a superior thing? Or is it just another thing to deal with. Like, I don't know if I'm making sense here. Let me give you a
1: little story (laughs) that I think kind of gives us an opportunity to loop this all up into one bundle. When I moved to Colorado in 2007 on the, I'm sure completely casual, almost unintentional invitation of Stuart Davis, who was like, come on up, join the party. Let's do this. And I was like, okay, let's do it. I got up there and there was an opportunity right away to volunteer with Ken Wilber as like a panel of young guest editor type. Someone had convinced him he needed a blog on his website and that the blog was not going to be his writing. He had decided, but like other people's that he wanted to feature. And so there was like submissions, you know, and we would just review the submissions at his place in Denver every week. And the first time I went there... I was just so excited meeting all these people. I call it dog park mode where it's like you've been (sighs) locked up in your thing. and You you just like lose it, social mania. I was having a great time. And then afterwards, waiting on the way out, one of the folks that had worked at Integral Institute for a long time took me aside and was like, hey, man, I really like you. I'm glad you're here. And so that's why I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, which is that you are like a controversial person. Not everybody here does like you. And you're kind of like rubbing people the wrong way with this enthusiasm. And he's like, I know it's stupid. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But like, listen, man, I was, this is him speaking. He's like, I, I got to a point where I had annoyed people enough without them telling me that they fired me held a hotel room intervention with me about my unwelcome behavior or whatever that was. Three days later, they rehired me. And he's like, I just don't want that to happen to you. He's like, yes, this is an amazing place to be. This is an amazing community to be in, amazing conversation to be part of. But everybody here is obsessed with their development and evolution and like dealing with their stuff you know that's like true Mm -hmm. of boulder generally at least it was before weed got legal and it got flooded with cannabis industry people like boulder was a very like Mm -hmm. everybody you knew was a life coach oh my god it was insane you couldn't get people to come to concerts because they were all coaching but it was like yeah but what he said to me was basically the taller you build this thing the more holes they're going to Be in it. It's like Jenga. It's like you get to a certain point, and if you haven't done the work that you were just talking about, like of you know, like facing your own unintegrated stuff, Mm -hmm. then you can only build taller than you currently are by removing load bearing stuff from below you and placing it on top. Mm -hmm. You know, and so he's like, like, this is a great scene to be in, but it's neurotic as fuck. Mm -hmm. Everybody here has issues and like, you're Mm -hmm. just going to have to deal with those issues if you expect this to work. And so there's, yeah, like that I don't know as, as far as like a sympathy for the devil is concerned, there are environments that I have moved in where people never learned some of the stuff in the first place, you know, where they just were Mm -hmm. so narrowly focused, highly specialized in their training that they seem Kind of broken or incomplete, but then there are other Mm -hmm. places where people are really well rounded, but like messed up at the same time. And so, anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, I I wanted to pay a little more tribute to what you like, what we first started talking about with respect to learning in public, because Mm -hmm. around that time, I was really unclear on what I was doing in my life. Working with the Integral (laughs) Institute was. Almost like an act of desperation. I was just like, "Oh my god!" Like, <laughs> finally, some people that like see things in a profound way, and you know, like, I gotta, I gotta seize this. And I think that's probably why yep. I was annoying people was just because I was so unclear about how to find the what at the time people were still non-ironically calling their tribe.
0: I can't imagine non-ironically doing anything at this point. Right, right.
1: And so funny because I, <laughs> I wrote this essay about how how over-irony I was in 2007. It's like, well, <laughs> tough titties, buddy. Yeah. But yeah, so I started doing this thing where I, I was like posting on Facebook about how I just don't know what I'm doing with my life or what I am or who I am. and And that was the stuff that got people's attention. Since then, I've realized over the years that I think one of the things that I admire about your sort of disposition and process is this willingness to be vulnerable in that way. Because one, I think as far as like interpersonal dynamics are concerned, it's unwholesome to act, frankly, the way that Ken acts, you know, Mm -hmm. to speak parent to child and to speak Mm -hmm. child to child, no matter how brilliant you are to invite people into a learning and discovery thing. This is something I'm like constantly trying to like impress upon researchers at SFI is like what we're really doing and communicating this stuff is getting people excited about realizing that they don't know what's going on. You know, like this is like the real thing, the real thing that you on SFI faculty are excited about is not what you know, right? It's not Mm -hmm. you having it figured out for so many places that are committed to research and discovery, this is like a major branding problem because they have to appear Mm -hmm. like geniuses, which they are, Mm -hmm. and that requires a performativity Mm -hmm. that I think actually inhibits recruitment in a way, right? Like Mm -hmm. it it makes it look like, oh wow, you guys are amazing. But when I was doing artwork at festivals, the number one thing I heard from people, it wasn't just me, it was all the painters, You're awesome. Mm -hmm. I could never do that. I'm like, are you kidding? I like Mm -hmm. snuck into this shit. My friends and I carried easels into Tycho and Matthew Deere at South by Southwest and just told the the bouncers that we were part of the production crew. Like we did that shit, you know? And it was like, honestly, that's probably why uh, promoters were hesitant to pay us because that was kind of the standard. Live artists was to just renegade that shit. But at any rate, The point being that I was trying to impress upon people that I'm doing this painting in public rather than in my house so that you can watch it unfold, so that it loses its mystique, so that you can experience the creative process as a process rather than as a finished product. And that infused everything I started doing and to the point now where like changes in context result in changes in the individual that inhabits that environment. It's just like, you know, there's the bland, boring way to talk about this is lifelong learning, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I'm much more a fan of like, we're finally reaching the point where the pace of culture and society is fast enough that some of the things that were like the shots that were called by Charles Darwin about like, oh, everything is mutable, the human being is not a fixed category. It's like a f- process. And if we sped everything up, it would look like this. You've listened to me talk about that stuff probably on complexity when yeah. I? I was talking to Brian Arthur about the shift from algebra. to No, I oh,
0: not that one. That's the one. That's the one where I felt like we <laughs> yeah. really got
1: into it because he welcomes us having a conversation about how the shift from using algebra to using algorithms in economics Whoa. is the shift from nouns to verbs. <laughs> it's the shift from seeing yeah. the economy as a collection of things to you know this this thing that's like you cannot be completely understood by anybody and is in this state of constant e- e- discovery and evolution. And so like that's a huge mm-hmm. change and that still hasn't fully like permeated society, you know, people are still chasing mm-hmm. this sort of faustian control bullshit so at any rate i just i think you're on the winning side of history as far as i'm concerned because <laughs> like one of the 12 <laughs> inevitable like talk about being on a pulpit i guess but like kevin kelly's book the inevitable where he's like talking about the 12 trends of you know this is how the future is going to be this is inevitable one of them was that we're moving from a state of like you're ever a finished project into this constant becoming an open-ended and so, yeah, I don't know. That's I feel like that's the problem. A lot of people have these problems with the way that I talk on on this show and that show, where I never actually get to the point of a question. But I'm like, but that's just because we're just—it's a random walk through a network of ideas, and then I yeah. give up and I pass you the baton, and that's this—that's happening yeah. right now. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Okay. Baton received because there's a lot of really good stuff in what you just said in regards to. A couple of different just things that stood out to me were performance, the performance of the expert and appearing as if there's this, this completion, which is like, really, it's the, it's the main lie, I would say, is, is kind of like what I think you were getting at there with the, the constant becoming and the process. And I think there's this, so the Robert Keegan model of self-development, I guess the quote unquote highest form of development is self-transforming mind, which is, If what you're looking for is closure in terms of, like, there's a stage progression and then I'll get to a place where I become complete, that's going to be a very disappointing model for you to engage with. However, if you're kind of someone who embraces the open-ended nature of life being a process, of non-life being a process, you know, things that we wouldn't classify biologically as being alive have a metaphorical way of living of of transforming and, and and becoming and constant becoming and change and the sort of what i love about what you mentioned with the performance leading to the sort of inauthenticity or this this difficulty of people being able to really relate to this idea of an expert is because it's not real really a thing whereas people can relate to the messiness of discovery because it's if you think about What people are looking for, creative people uh, specifically, but what people are really looking for is to access flow. Because we, even in a culture that is obsessed with productivity and finishing things and being perfect, we still are aware now at the very least that getting into the state of flow mentally helps us achieve that it helps us get this sort of letting go of the finished product and just engaging with the moment and the process as it is and as it changes and changing with it helps us actually get to this sort of finished product that we have this mythology around and and what's really I guess interesting about what you said in regards to the performance of being an expert is that it's not, as I said, it's not relatable, because it's not really what what we want at on a deeper level. It's what we think that we should have. And it's also a thing that we can't really access. And so we kind of want it more, Um, which is strange, but it's that's a thing that happens. Um, When you're talking about people having kind of an issue with the way that you approach the podcast, it's funny because it's like, people who kind of play in the meta modern space, I think there's this sort of like, dejected sense of, yeah, I'm probably never going to be understood in this, but, like, this is what things are becoming in 50 years or so. This is going to be, like, <laughs> the standard of how we relate is by just, I don't know what the fuck is going on, like, <laughs> or whatever. I don't know how, like, the level of, of profanity that is allowed on this podcast, but I think oh, 100%. I percent went there, I just hit the top Tier, like, speaking of tears, I am, like, second-tier profanity right now.
1: I think we should shoot for third-tier okay. profanity. Pro, profanity
0: <laughs> oh, God, tier pro, profanity. profanity. that
1: would amaze <laughs> Ken Wilber.
0: Oh, man. Oh. Oh, now we're talking.
1: Layman, if you're listening to this, Layman <laughs> and, and, and Bruce, uh, I, I invite your... This is a caption contest. Here, I'll just be quiet for two seconds, and you can just fill in... In the, in the comments, what unspeakable horror I just uttered.
0: <laughs> uh, one thing I love about Layman, I don't know Bruce too well, but one thing I love about Layman is I'm not sure if he considers anything sacred. And I think that's why he's, like, my favorite integralist who is, like, an, a self-described integralist who, like, still engages with that community despite the clusterfuck that it has become. And... I think what's great about people like that, the sort of like sacred clown mentality there is that that is traditionally the trickster's role in the sort of pantheon is to ensure that the power balance doesn't become destructive or oppressive and our sort of hyper seriousness or sort of desire to embody the expert the stuffy guy wearing a suit who knows all and he's like the priest you know i think you get my point here is that there's a a need uh, for the sort of shall we say to put it in controversial terms there's a need for the crowd to knock the statue down of the uh there's a need for the blasphemer because the blasphemer is is who keeps the system moving. This is going to be super probably controversial, but Dave Chappelle's uh comments. I just you watched know, it last night. Yeah, uh, I haven't watched it okay. yet, but I'm seeing the movement and I I I don't even like I probably should watch it if I'm going to talk about it and I I would like to have my own personal experience with it and experience the discomfort and the uh, cuz I know that a lot of things that he said were really um Past offensive and more into the realm of like, how is he perpetuating ideas that might um, encourage other people to hurt other people? So right. not that he's hurting people, right. but that he might be giving people who want to already hurt people permission to hurt people who have historically speaking had the short end of the stick. Right. And that's a fair argument. And I have not watched it, so I cannot speak.
1: We to will that. follow what up I can on this when to... you have. We can. We will we can talk we about should. it on Facebook or whatever. Yeah. You
0: know, cause... I would love to. But in the meantime, my general uneducated idea is that there is movement happening, there's conversation happening, and he's a blasphemer, you know? He's, He's saying the things you're not supposed to say. Because when someone says a thing that they're not supposed to say, people in society... Debate whether whether or not it should continue to be said, how to move forward with those kinds of commentaries, or like what uh, should we give permission to it? and if so, why? And that's kind of the sort of classical liberal belief that discourse and free speech and all of that, there's sort of a necessity of saying things you're not supposed to say to people you're not supposed to say it to, in order to engage in transformation collective systemic transformation comes from that oh yeah so that's just my two cents
1: no complete complete <laughs> agreement i i will say like i have great sympathy for I, I, at this point we've been on this for almost 50 minutes i want to like swan dive right off the edge into the occult yes. because I, I just like okay wait, <laughs> we've here. i don't have i don't have i, I really don't feel like it's about time the, I don't, yeah i don't feel like taking the effort required to find another way to say this. I was born with a natal retrograde mercury.
0: Oh, So being
1: understood, understanding, being misunderstood, misunderstanding, being a little more introspective than is comfortable for other people, asking questions that upset things. These are all things that I consider to be innate for me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons I get along really well with my buddy Mitch Mignano, who's been on the show a couple times. He was lucky enough to go to a Sundance and witness that and, you know, really actually hit it off with the Heyoka that was participating in that event. Mm. Really Mm. realized that, like, his spiritual identity or calling or whatever was as a trickster and, like, made that the focus of his academic work and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he is unbelievably good at doing that work in a way that a lot of other people fail. For instance, somebody says something in one of the groups that I moderate and you could take it one of two ways. Like either this person's joking or this person's being completely tone deaf and they're an asshole. And I was like, look, I know that I'm going to give you the benefit of a doubt here, but the problem is that I had to. And it's not really on you mm-hmm. because we're all inhabiting this thing that doesn't make any sense to us as organisms which is this media milieu that has stripped away all of the indication that you're joking like there's no text markup in unicode for i'm being a smart ass mm-hmm. not universally there's like people use the sarc mark or you know open s brackets closed s anyway the point is that somehow Mitch manages not to ever fall into the like well I was just joking it's on you yeah it's on you to like you know I'm just misunderstood and people are being hard harsh on me or whatever right. like that's if that's the attitude that you have then you're not actually succeeding in trickster because the trickster doesn't mm-hmm. take himself seriously either and he's like he's not right. gonna get butt hurt if people like take offense <laughs> at what he's saying because they misunderstand. We're
0: getting into like Enneagram type four territory here. Okay. Well we're like, Oh, we're, we're going beyond the trickster, which I feel like the trickster is more of a seven energy. If, if you're familiar I am with the a seven. Enneagram. Whereas... Okay. All right. There you go. I'm a four. Okay. And I can tell when I'm going into, like, foreshadow territory where it's like, oh, I'm so misunderstood. It's just because I'm a freaking genius and you don't get it, man. And that's the four's classic way of trying to escape the self. Trying to hide from the feelings of shame of, like, oh, I failed in communicating.
1: Do you want to take the responsibility of giving people, like, a minute introduction to the Enneagram stuff? Yeah, because this is one, yeah, another of one of those like rabbit holes. Like this is actually something that I yeah. studied in a course while studying. In a, like there was a, an Enneagram course, and I misdiagnosed, I mischaracterized myself all through the entire course uh-huh. until the last week, and then uh-huh. had to write my final paper about how it is that I had, I could have gotten an, a self assessment of personality so wrong.
0: Yeah. Okay. I would love to. So the Enneagram is uh, one of the more well-known typology systems that sort of types people based on their coping strategies. And their, what I love about it is that if you're into shadow work, which most people are, it's very trendy, then the Enneagram is really perfect because it, it sort of likes to look at the personality as a shield. And then there's like a core belief structure that one might have about oneself in the world that then informs how one uh, performs the archetype that one sort of unconsciously embodies in the world. I think that it looks at identity structure from this very fluid way, which is ironic because the typology system, and I don't think it's actually that ironic, but some people might find it ironic <laughs> because people think typology is about telling you who you are, but the Enneagram, when you get into the complexity of it, it's more about telling you who you've decided to be based on whatever context you found yourself in. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's also beautiful about it is it talks about how one develops... So you can have a core type, but as a human being, you're going to use all, you can sort of show up as different types, depending on what's kind of going on in your life or how developed you are or whether or not you're under stress. And so there's, there's all these different ways that one can move along the Enneagram. There's nine types. Each one kind of has a a little name. (laughs) I almost want to create like an Enneagram tarot deck or something to just kind of, Right? Things that I've been thinking of are Enneagram Tarot Deck and uh Neutromilk Hotel Discography Tarot Deck. <laughs> <laughs> Just to sort of deconstruct the idea that Jung is the authority on archetypes. <laughs> I got into a fight with a guy where I sort of I referred to specific archetypes with uh like a I referred to the archetype of the priest, and the guy got super pissed. He was like that's not what an archetype is. And I was like, okay, so like, what do you mean? I'm using language, which is already an insufficient tool for referring to something that is archetypal. But here I'm, here I am doing my best. And you're just like, that's not an archetype. And I'm like, well, like if that's not an archetype, nothing is because come on, man. Well, it's like people going like that's.
1: (laughs) So I had the moment that got me past that conversation, that kind of conversation, my senior year of college in the evolutionary biology course where they asked us there's like five of us to get up and represent and defend a particular concept of species in front of like 200 people and i got up there and i was like this is a trap you know like every one of these concepts it's about a, a methodological approach it's like does this thing mate in the laboratory does it mate in the wild is it arbitrarily close to the other thing genetically every one of them is just like appropriate for certain kinds of questions and not for others and so it's the same thing like whoever you were talking to that guy there's a difference between a Jungian archetype and like a Mm -hmm. whatever yeah if you I mean hopefully at the same time I I have sympathy for people who call it white male fragility although it's not that specifically but it's the it's it's the archetype of white male right, right. No, it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the fear of not having control which is mm-hmm. for some demographics basically a a substitute for the security that one would have in a healthier society well, clipped. you know, I think that's really what it is. Like, yeah. just on the heels of my conversation with Chris Ryan about this, about the <laughs> comfort and the security that foraging peoples feel because they live in a world that they understand. Like, yeah. they know what the challenges mm-hmm. before them will be in life, mm-hmm. you know, and they feel mm-hmm. competent, they feel equipped to handle those challenges. And, mm-hmm. like, nope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Good luck with that, but you're not going to get into the flow state with that. Attitude. Right. But yeah, so, I mean, it's like so, so, much,
1: so much of, so much of this stuff is not just about status games per se, but like the posturing <laughs> of, of knowing something seems to be mm-hmm. a way that, and Ryan said this in the book specific, like explicitly, you know, he he referenced Ernest Becker's denial of death, you know, and he's mm-hmm. like, this is just the way that we relate ourselves from the abyss that we have created in exactly the way that you mentioned earlier, which five points for managing to say this without any complex systems jargon that like the more (laughs) complex things become, the more unstable and self-disrupting they become because there's just more relationships inside this, whatever you're looking at. Yeah. And it's amazing to me how some people just don't like see this, that, You know, in the defense of modernity, that's part of it, though, right? Like the defense of Mm -hmm. civilization, the defense of the modern world is because people are deeply afraid of the bears, you know, Mm -hmm. that lie outside the proverbial city walls or whatever. No, I have spent the last 2000 years clenching this sphincter and it's going to stay clenched, (laughs) even if it kills me, even if I die from sepsis, you know, like I'm not letting (laughs) poisons in. OK, so anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. But, I mean, I, I have I have a lot of sympathy for people who are afraid, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, not only do I have a sympathy, rather an empathy for that, I am sort of devoting my energy and time to creating the cure, the vaccine, so to speak, you know, to that. Like, what is the antidote to that? sphincter clenching well is your sphincter clenching or do you actually just have chronic inflammation you know (laughs) like do you actually need something to take the swelling down or to relax the muscles around the sphincter i'm really going with this metaphor yeah Yeah, yeah. (laughs) relax the muscles around the sphincter like did you have potty training trauma and so there's just this habitual thing that you're now doing and it's uh, it's not necessarily that you're choosing the fear, it's that the fear is a habit. And when you look at sort of like, you talked a little bit about complex systems, which is something that I am really super nerding out on and learning about. And it's funny because it's like, I have ADHD and, and learning about complex systems is great because it's like, oh, I just like have already known all of this. I just now have words for it because like my brain has been able to recognize this for um my entire life but it was considered a pathology. So, by digress, there's a a tendency, shall we say, for things <laughs> I'm like trying to use jargon but I just can't. Things <laughs> well, in our beautiful, strange, complex, confusing, multifaceted universe, the reason why we recognize these p- patterns, you know, or why we why there are these laws is cuz it kind of gets into habits, you know. It literally just gets into habits that's sort of what appears to be the consensus on why we have laws why we have why we can recognize patterns and whatnot um, provided the pattern that we're recognizing is a real pattern and not like a one of those projection things that we do where we recognize patterns that aren't there Mm -hmm. and we too get into habits because we are elements in reality so it's like oh we're just doing the thing that reality does as an element in reality we're building habits how do we build habits that help us either experience what we want to experience continue surviving what are some other core human values that i can kind of pull out of pull out of my butt while i'm talking that <laughs> connect to other human beings more efficiently and more deeply or or less deeply, if that's what you want. How do we build the correct habits for what we want to experience individually and collectively instead of how do we shame ourselves into being what we think society wants us to be? Because there's also this there's this element of we blame society for making us a certain way as opposed to like realizing that we perpetuate the way society is by allowing it to tell us that we need to be what we need to be. And I love that you brought up your retrograde Mercury, natal retrograde Mercury. Do you know what house and sign your Mercury is in? Actually?
1: Third house Capricorn.
0: Wow. So cool. it's, it's perfect for someone who does
1: a lot of writing and research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just starving before I got mm. to SFI. And now just to like drink from a fire hose of research for your living.
0: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs>
1: it feels good to have that after dropping out of grad school and then not having an intellectual get paid to read kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for thirteen years and then being like, oh shit! Like, mm-hmm. here's what I missed.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I sort of. <laughs> I love the implications of um, a planet like Mercury and a sign like Capricorn because it kind of it disrupts your. Astrology is very interesting because uh, there's so much freedom in how you interpret and when one sort of gets into the whole astrology is a pseudoscience or astrology is real kind of false dichotomy, it's like one actually kind of limits themselves in how they can use it. It's not, can I use it? Is it going to be accurate? It's how can I use it? Mm. In what way will I decide that I'm going to use it? And, and what's great about um, a planet like Mercury, because I think of Mercury as like we talked a little bit about the trickster and what the trickster is often also the messenger, like Mercury, especially in astrological lore, I can't really speak to the uh, original sort of Greek, what have you. I know that he's he has a lot to do with writing and he has a lot to do with speech and the sort of monkey mind, the conscious mind, as opposed to other planets that will uh, talk about you know Jupiter is the higher mind and the sun is sort of the mediator between the two, shall we say? But and then Capricorn is <laughs> gets kind of this reputation for being this very gold, very um penny pinching sort of weird resource hoarding kind of business oriented stuffy sign which is is funny because my interpretation of capricorn is very playful in fact it's very interested in tradition it's very interested in what can pre- be preserved what can be because it's uh it's the sign it, the signification of the sign is that it's around harvest time so it's like what can be preserved and used and and how do we take it and bring it sort of towards how do we sustain ourselves long term? That kind of thing, and then you have Mercury there, which is this very like borderline disruptive, sort of almost her- heretical energy. Uh, it's like Ratatoskr. Do you know? Are you familiar with Ratatoskr? No. Okay, so Ratatoskr is probably one of my favorite tricksters. Uh, it's a it's so it's this uh, in the sort of Norse um, mythology. He's a a squirrel, and he's the messenger squirrel, and his job is to take messages from the nine worlds and kind of, like, move them around, but he always changes his story. Perfect. Every time he he takes a trip, he changes the story. He changes, like, one word from the story, and then he goes to the next world, and he tells a completely different story. And I think that that's such an accurate metaphor for, like, what happens when you try to translate across value systems. I think that uh, Ken Wilber is almost like an unintentional ratatosker in the sense that he's, like, trying to fit these worlds together that are supposed to be different. <laughs> yeah. Not only that, but I, like, I think that Mercury being in Capricorn to kind of, like, stay focused, which is borderline impossible for me, um, yeah. <laughs> you're, like, in an institution, and you're kind of bringing this polymath kind of energy, because Mercury is is very much the planet of polymaths, people who kind of, like, got a thousand each finger's in a different pie, and you're like, but it's like, it's it's not necessarily the one flavor is, and then the other flavor, but it's like, how does my experience of all the flavors simultaneously affect... Experiencing this flavor and that flavor actually changes both flavors. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like there's like a third flavor that comes up, but then the original flavors still are there, and there's, the flavor gore you know, complexity there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and so I I super, I, I very much love the implications of that and how that shows up for you. I can see a correspondence between that and you being in like an institute of higher learning that's got like sort of like rules and everyone wants to be an expert and everyone wants to be a Capricorn. And you got your Mercury there in the third house, too, of like you're a podcaster and you're kind of taking what this foundation that's there and playing with it. And then bringing that to the world in this very interesting way. So, yeah, well, per- really nice placement. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> got it's
1: at yeah. like zero degrees Capricorn adjacent okay. to four planets in Sagittarius, like all, like a uh, stellium in Sag, which for okay. the astro-naive is very much, <laughs> like Sagittarius is very much like the uh, holy man or the god on the mountain type thing. Yeah. SFI is, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's expansive, <laughs> it's authoritative, and SFI is literally a building full of experts on a mountain. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> there is this thing about like coming down from the mountain and how, you know, and I've talked about this a little bit with Michael Phillip in episode 161, because it's funny that you say like, yeah, and everybody's trying to do that because I told my employers, that i thought that the role that i could grow into more with this org would be hermetic basically like to function as the red blood cell that traverses because like i spent all these times trying to get the building closer to the street yeah and it's like that's actually a bad idea because there are good reasons to like you know monastic reasons to isolate a community to focus Mm -hmm. on something. And yet of course the question of how much isolation is always important because you can lose your sense for what's going on or you become irrelevant or whatever. Yes. I said, as this, this person that just like walks through walls all the time and Mm -hmm. therefore makes this institution kind of nervous. I think it makes sense for us to lean into this and like, Mm -hmm. allow me to be the Hermes figure that comes down off the mountain and goes to conferences and represents this place. Yeah, And to, you know, to their credit, they were just like, well, that's what we all do. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody here is engaged in tran- the work of translation and mm-hmm. the scholarly stuff. I'm like, look, broadly true. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's like different aspects or personae related to a hermetic archetype that apply mm-hmm. to like research scientists and theorists and so on. But that's a very different kind of thing. To put it in mm-hmm. Enneagram terms, it's Ken Wilber five. Or Todd guess (laughs) my buddy five, not the seven, not the you Mm -hmm. know, the one that's like wants to lock themselves in the library, not the one that wants to go execute complicated handshakes.
0: Yeah. I yeah, I'm I'm glad that you brought up the sort of the hermetic archetype, the and the Enneagram and I would love to just like nerd out more about that with you in regards to I, I also wanna like I don't wanna just like intellectually jerk off or anything i want to make sure well well you're (laughs) a listener sir okay (laughs) if
1: you're still listening to this write to me write to me and tell me how many of you made it who are you i I love you and i want i want to um i don't know maybe like airdrop an nft or something to you
0: right just you know offer like free tarot readings or yeah yeah and if you
1: can't tell she's good for it (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So so speaking of this, because this is actually one thing I really wanted to make sure that we get to, and we've
0: we've. Can I just? Oh yeah. Sorry. Before you. Yeah. No. Before you go on, I just want to tell you how much I love you. I love you too. Yeah. I think that you are a fantastic human being, and uh, please keep doing this.
1: One day, hopefully, uh, we'll get to hang out in person. One of these days.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of allergic to the West Coast, but I have family out there, so. <laughs> well, don't go to the West
1: Coast. I was born in LA. Oh. That place terrifies yeah.
0: me.
1: Santa Fe. Oh, wait. I
0: thought you were there. Oh, no,
1: no, no. Santa Fe is remote, it's practically not even America. It's still so dominated by the cultural and architectural influences of colonial Spain that it's effectively a Western European city.
0: But with people
1: driving around with Trump flags. So it's a weird kind of like – (laughs) anyway. Okay, so a lot of what we've talked about so far today has been about this knowing, not knowing kind of polarity. And there's like two strains in this that I want to braid, one of which is this statement that you had just made about astrology and how you get over is it true or is it not true – by asking a much more, what I would call like a like a cynical question or a pragmatic mm-hmm. question, right? Which is, how can I mm-hmm. use it? What does it mm-hmm. do if I just apply this algorithm rather than trying to understand mm-hmm. if it's... Because that's the Brian Arthur mm-hmm. algebra thing, right? It's like, you can look at the math and be like, it doesn't work, but the economy is full of surprises. It generates surprises. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's rather, it's what it does. It's a collection of crap. It is that. (laughs) What it does is create more crap, new kinds of crap, right? So at any rate, astrology, I actually am one of these weirdos that thinks that eventually a combination of rigorous statistical or like analytical techniques and also the freedom to fund whatever scientific research you want without concerns about how it's going to reflect upon the prestige of your organization through structures like a decentralized autonomous organization that can print its own magical internet money and then decide as a pseudonymous group of weirdos. Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to fund information theory, astrology research. That's Mm -hmm. coming.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's called future fossils. Oh
1: my God. I hope so. (laughs) I I can't believe, actually, I can't believe I've been talking about this idea of a science (laughs) DAO basically every day for over a month. I can't believe I haven't brought it up on this show yet. So, okay, if you've made it this far and the thought of being airdropped in NFT for making it this far appealed to you, then I want to talk to you about the future of fossil science now. But it's also key that like a lot of the best astrologers are also completely unconcerned with that whole debate. The whole like, is it or is it not? Something that yeah. we can build a house on. And I think yeah. that, like, I love that line uh, William Gibson's talks about how the street finds its own uses for things mm. and how, like, that connects to this idea of things being unfinished, uh, evolutionary, processual. I mean, I wrote this this piece I'll include in the show notes about how everything that we call an adaptation is actually just like a part that was already lying around and was repurposed for something else.
0: Oh, you're talking about exaptation, acceptation, right? Yeah. That the
1: limb, the fish limb, you know, that wasn't used for walking at first. It mm-hmm. like turned out to be useful for that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that question of like, well, what is astrology good for by their fruits? Shall ye know them? Like, well, what is actually mm-hmm. happening here? Run the algorithm and find out. Or as Richard Doyle would talk about, tweaking the set and setting of your psychoactive plant adventures by changing what you call them from mm-hmm. you know, psychedelic to ecodelic and noticing how that informs your experience. So at any rate, I think it's important what you said there, that there is this dimension to put it in an integral theory framing. There is the sort of like upper right empirical anatomical behavioral way of looking mm-hmm. at something. And then there's the lower right functional systematic interobjective way of looking at things. And that's yeah. something that I think is going to become, I don't know. It's like the way that Russians studied telepathy behind the iron curtain. They were like, okay, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to get hung up on the fact that we don't have a mechanism for this. Mm-hmm. We're just going to explore it because we accept that for the purposes of building our telepathy center, like state sponsored mm-hmm. telekinesis research. This is real yeah. and we're just going to like open a wizard school. My friend <laughs> Sonia Lu. That's how it. it's done. Yeah, she she <laughs> went to this place. I forget if it was in Moscow or St. Petersburg, but she said she actually visited this old Cold War era telekinesis school that still exists in Russia.
0: Oh my god. And that like
1: they have like the glass cases with stuff inside. They they teach you to move around with your mind and all this crap. Anyway, oh my God. you know, and here we are over in America being like, well, I'm not going to believe it until you tell me how it works. So there's that. Yeah. And then there's this other thing, yeah. which is knowing and, and false optimization. And if you know what the leg is good for, you're never going to leave the water. I mean, shit, it doesn't have to just be astrology. It could be like critical race theory or QAnon or any kind of like conceptual package has all of these mm-hmm effects that were not part of its technological design you know and we don't mm-hmm. know what those are and those are going to change as as the world changes around that thing or through inter- engagement with it so at any rate yeah. I just it's interesting because it's like you just espoused this who I can't remember who it was that was on Eric Davis's old show Expanding Mind he had a few conversations about the tarot and about oracles and AI that really informed my thinking on this and he was talking about How, you know, now that we're at the point where computers are writing math proofs that people can only verify empirically, but they can't work them out, like they can't actually figure out how the machine solved the proof, Mm -hmm. that our experts, quote unquote, are back to being basically just like priests that are intermediating with mystery, and that, like, they're just sitting around praying to their computers in their in their white lab coats or whatever, you know, like. Yep. And so here we are. We're like, I don't know if you use this. Lo and behold, amazingly, I'm not getting a promotion from them, but maybe I should. Co-star astrology.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. the machine. They use learning, AI. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. are like verses. NASA data and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, yes,
1: finally, like, you've actually gotten the human interpreter, kind of like. I mean, obviously, like, there's no getting the humans out of code, right? But on some level, you're you're sort of washing out all of the individual biases of individual astrologers by feeding them all into a horoscope writing software. And that seems to me like an early indicator of the way that people are going to start treating the machinic interfaces as, like, sensory augmentation or cognitive augmentation that allow us to... I am probably 15 years late to the table of pointing out that Google is effectively like a Delphic Oracle. You don't know how it works. You go to it. It gives you
0: information and <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a magic box. So, like, And you just, you just absorb the information as if it's, it's, you're just like, yeah, that's it, right. Google told me. So, and then you appeal to the authority of the Oracle. Right. That is Google. <laughs> right. Right. And right, so, <laughs> yeah. I don't know.
1: I just, I, I just kind of want to pass it back to you around the topic of, how oracular praxis might start making more and more sense. Because as you Mm -hmm. said, oh, this was the other explicit piece. Was you talking about rationality and regarding the rational regarding the irrational as a Mm -hmm. sort of like bug that you're trying to factor out, but it's irreducible and you can't. And Mm -hmm. yeah, there's just this whole thing about rationality or the modern paradigm is like stuck on this Mm -hmm. peak of its own fabrication mm-hmm. you know and like meanwhile the whole evolutionary landscape is like boiling everywhere else around it and yeah like, well how are you getting how are you gonna get anywhere from where you're standing again like i'm just basically writing on eric davis's coattails talking about how the networked digital society is resurfacing or culturally retrieving in mm. marshall McLuhan's I language like it's bringing back all of these yeah. ways that people interfaced with mystery in order mm-hmm. to augment their decision making, I mean, even to just like make it sort of like a material statement, it might only be that your left brain is talking to your right brain and that like you're mm-hmm. using the thing. Minimal argument there. I'm happy if that's what people see it as, honestly. All right, so like you're going to get a bunch of secular materialists into astrology and, and the tarot because. They realize that it's somehow.
0: That's my mission in life: is to get. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a way for them to yeah. reconnect to some part of their own demonstrably false skin encapsulated other self or whatever. Like we know that that's bullshit, yeah. but it's still like it's it's practical enough.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a marvelous rant, and I think that um, there's just so much there that I don't really really know. There's just just this sort of like amorphous beast that you have presented. And talk I'm not to me really about sure the future. Angle yeah,
1: I'm sorry, I just <laughs> dropped you.
0: I dropped you on the spider's from. back. Talk to me That's about. That's fine. Talk to me about how you, <laughs> the
1: oracle, see <laughs> oracular thinking. Yeah,
0: I'm just say like magical
1: thinking. That there is a mm-hmm. place for magical thinking mm-hmm. in the 21st century. Oh
0: yeah, no, oh, I do have some stuff to say about this. This is my whole entire emerging body of work which used to be this kind, these kind of shots in the dark and is now sort of coagulating into something that actually is starting to make some sense, is very much central. This is sort of the nucleus of that, and I'm glad that you brought it up because I'm I, talking about it is helping it form, for sure. I'm going to um, take a long so... lean back and let you just rip. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, cool. So, yeah, oracular thinking. I mean, when you really think about it, we never stop doing that. We've just started coming up with more complex ways to do it and what seems to what the trend seems to be is that we come up with predictive tech psychotechnologies they become obsolete as our environment changes and we either develop and then we develop them but then we get into this fallacy of trying to get rid of the old ones and what's what i love about um how john vervakey kind of talks about exaptation and how we form these um these ways of interacting with reality that help us survive until they don't. They don't necessarily because we're such rapidly cha- we, we're rapidly changing. Our environment is rapidly changing. These sort of adaptations don't disappear. They find new uses. And what I, I've sort of noticed is that the oracular nature that the, the is, it comes from this need to try to predict what's going to happen next in reality. Which is ultimately, it's not as so much futile as it is just sort of like very difficult and not as real. We come up with these systems, we rely upon them. And then as uh, the environment changes, we kind of feel betrayed in this strange way a lot of the time where it's like, oh, it was wrong. No, it wasn't wrong. It was right. It's not anymore. And astrology is one of those things to sort of bring it into what we were actually talking about is astrology was this way initially of telling time and trying to predict the environment through symbolism. So it's like, Oh, the sea goat rules the harvest and the ram rules the spring. And like, you can tell when you look at the sort of history of where astrology comes from and why people were were using that kind of language. It makes sense when you um, put it in its proper context. Now, we have more sophisticated technology now for doing those kinds of things. We also have a different environment. We have an economy. We in a post-industrial world. We have computers, for Christ's sake. Like, hello. So it's like, is astrology good for predicting what it initially was used to predict? Probably not. But can we use it in a different way, because it still sort of resonates with our mythic consciousness, our meaning making, sort of the elements of our experience where we, we are still storytellers, we'd never stopped being storytellers, we tell our stories in different ways, we tell different kinds of stories, we tell a lot of the same kinds of stories. And I think recognizing that is really important for then the next piece about astrology or something like the Enneagram or anything that sort of takes information, complex information from reality and synthesizes it into some sort of image that has to sort of be vague and referential and open-ended in order to encompass all that it does because it encompasses a lot. So that's kind of my definition of what an archetype or a symbol is. It's like a synthesis of so much information that it's like a a way of generalizing something that is really quite broad, really quite expansive. It's just easier to refer to the father or God, because if I tried to explain it to you in uh, more specific terms, we would be here for several days, most likely. And I would probably need to go get a graduate's degree real quick before we did. So um, rather than spend $50,000 a year for like five to seven years trying to explain or like a thousand
1: dollars in europe
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool sorry please continue <laughs> no you make a great point i'm gonna try not to be angry about that so that i can keep talking uh right. germans germans
1: please yeah. just do not express your horror and sympathy for what's yeah. going on with us in america we know But anyway,
0: sorry. That was a totally
1: inane interruption.
0: (laughs) No, it's fine. It's totally fine. But um, what you're speaking to in regards to, like, the oracular, I would say we need to first accept that we have this desire, uh, I dare say call it a need, to predict what's going to happen next in a world where we very technically absolutely cannot. And if we can, we can only do so temporarily so there's a sort of like inductive reasoning piece that we use inductive reasoning but the problem with inductive reasoning is that to be fair and this is kind of like basic bitch philosophy here but i'm gonna say it anyway technically my personal subjective sort of world can't assume that the sun is going to rise tomorrow but my interpersonal sort of transpersonal experience can due to just the history of of the habits of The universe that humans before me have contributed to charting and then humans after me will probably contribute to charting and so there's that sort of like beyond me piece but in terms of the individual subjective understanding of the self i would say that the symbolic esoteric is very much compatible with more shall we say analytical modes of understanding sort of the psychology and then you have like the neurology and whatnot like when once you get into these um the weeds of how things sort of work in terms of complexity it's just it's like the symbolic esoteric references become more useful because they're they're seen for what they are representations of a complex reality Uh, and not reality itself. So that is, I guess, the fundamental difference and integral people talk about this all the time and it's easily misunderstood. I think that that trans-rationality is actually a really bad name for the concept, but I didn't come up with it, so it's not my problem.
1: Uh, (sighs) Especially abbreviated to trans-rat for like Twitter. (laughs) Like that's like, I was like, are you serious? Is that what... Is that what kids these days are saying? <laughs> uh, Trans- we
0: are be making that my Twitter handle right now. That's amazing. It might okay, be taken, right. but yeah. So. Wow. Where were we? Transrationality. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, the co- so this uh, transrationality is essentially what I'm referring to when I say whether or not it's true or false is not necessary for using a technology like astrology because it's not for determining what is empirically true. It's just for making sense of things in a particular temporary way. And what's really interesting about that is that what is empirically true, what is uh, objectively true, also changes. Like, there are parts of objective reality that have not changed in a long time. And we can say that, I would say. But we can't necessarily say that they won't. We can say that it's safe to assume they won't anytime soon. (laughs) And then there are parts of objective reality, like when we talk about stuff like climate change, that are we can reasonably say that our environment, our physical environment, is changing. We can reasonably say that things about the reality change in a way we don't necessarily have direct control over or direct influence on. Then there are a lot of things about objective reality that we do have um, influence over that we can change. And then, boom, we're in a different objective reality. So uh, I think we need to kind of be m- more flexible about what we consider to be objective. And I think that we can also, in doing that, in, in a way that's not gaslighting people, obviously, because you run the risk of gaslighting people or of just g- ending up in this weird world where you... um you just, you're kind of in delusion. That's also a risk with that. But if you're able to kind of like engage with objectivity in this light way, then I think that things like astrology or systems of divination, we're really just, they're also, I guess you could consider them algorithms. They're just, um, they're meant to be held more lightly (laughs) than I guess the algorithms that we use to predict, shall we say, transpersonal objective sort of situations like statistics. That's good for a completely different realm than tarot. You know, you don't want to use tarot to determine what the trajectory of a rocket's going to be. That's a bad tool for that. I did a tarot reading for myself uh, yesterday. I normally don't like to do past, future, present, uh, past, present, future readings for myself. But the more I've started to get into the study of NLP, And timeline therapy, which is a sort of an NLP technique that takes you sort of back in time in your psyche and reframes and recontextualizes things that happened in your past. You don't literally go back in time, but it doesn't matter because figuratively going back in time creates a change in the present That then impacts the way you move through the world. So you've effectively shifted your future. You've effectively shifted your experience of reality. You haven't necessarily shifted the reality itself, but you've, you've taught your mind to recognize things that it wouldn't have recognized because it's gotten into these habitual patterns of seeing things a certain way. That's kind of a long-winded response to your question, but I think it was a very meaty question. (laughs) The question
1: was like 15 minutes long. So you're good.
0: At least, at least 15 minutes long.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, you took a pee break, and I was still... No. <laughs> yeah, keep going.
0: Uh, sure. Well, well, I think my favorite uh, thing to do in regards to... Oh, yeah, I did, like, a... I did a past, present, future reading for myself, and those can be tricky if you don't know how to, like, hold the concept of the future in a very uh, detached way because determinism is not your friend when it comes to uh, to predictive technology, especially if the predictive technology is something like tarot. So, like, the few, the card that came up in the future, what it really is is, like, it's, it's reflective of my own time binding. So I'm already predicting the future. I'm already constructing possible futures based on what's going on now and what has happened in the past. So I could do that unconsciously, or I could... Put a mirror in front of my face and be like, all right, so what's going on there? Like, it's sort of like a marriage of subject object that's happening there, where it's like, okay, so the cards that I am pulling now are reflective of what I'm already kind of constructing of possible futures, if that makes sense. It's sort of hard to describe, um, but I'm going to do my best. And I don't want to encourage people to use um, esoteric technology in a way where they're telling themselves that this thing is definitely going to happen. So I've made that mistake and it's very funny because then you'll go and if it's right, you'll tell yourself that it's the technology that's right. And if it's wrong, you'll tell yourself that it's the technology that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you look a little confused.
1: Well, no, it just occurs to me that this is exactly people's complaint about algorithmic policing. It's hmm. like the, the whole, like what you're actually doing in a way, tarot and machine learning algorithms for decision assistance have that also in common, which is that they are...
0: I think they have a lot in common, actually.
1: <laughs> They're psychedelic in the sense that psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers mm-hmm. of whatever it is that you have going on. And it makes it visible. It makes your biases visible. That's what psychedelics do. Mm. The suddenly you realize yeah. how your brain is just creating mm. this simulacrum of reality or whatever. And then mm-hmm. it's feeding back into itself and you're creating hyperstitions and so on. But so like that, you, you listen to a talk about how like the, the drug crime history data in Oakland ends up leading to this thing where certain neighborhoods are getting way insanely disproportionately aggressively policed. And mm-hmm. it's amplifying pre-existing racist demographic biases and policing and it's like this kind of thing. Yeah. That sounds like exactly what you're talking about. It's like, don't yeah. view this as deterministic because it's basically just, yeah. I mean, and that's in a way, that's what the secular rational problem is with this thing, right? Is that it's obviously just so open to interpretation, mm-hmm. but that's like, that's the point. So at any rate, right. yeah. So
0: Yeah. Any predictive technology is no longer your friend once you're viewing it from that um <laughs> I uh, I don't remember the exact word that you used, but it was absolutely perfect. It was like secular or something. Oh, secular
1: materialist, uh, rationalist. Secular
0: materialist. Yeah. Rationalist. So what is super hilarious about that sort of worldview, which I have a lot of respect for it and I understand why it is the way it is. And, and I, however, it sort of denies things outside of itself even if those things have like the same intention or core or philosophy or whatever. And so like with something like tarot, it's like, Oh, that's pseudoscientific. And it's like, well, it's only pseudoscientific if you're expecting it to be scientific in the first place, which it's not. And then it's funny because you go into like, well, what is the realm of science? What is science? The best tool for all things? Like does something need to be scientific or verifiable in order to be relevant? If you look at phenomenon like cultural narratives and, and these this sort of like identity politics thing, none of that is scientific. But you can clearly see how it's affecting people, how it's resonating with people, and how it's creating social change, For whether it's for the better or the worse. I think it's kind of a little bit of both. But if you tell someone that they are something, whether they are that or not, enough times, and you get them to really, truly embody that, they are that now, right? <laughs> you know, that's not necessarily, I mean, I'm, there's science behind it. I'm sure that you could explain in a uh, uh, from a sort of a biological or a rational lens why it happens, but the phenomenon itself, that's another piece I think is very interesting in regards to stuff like esoterica or um, I'll give a very specific example of what I mean when I talk about something I talk about a lot more recently as ritual art which is um, sort of a a continuous artistic practice that is used in, shall we say, an oracular fashion. But it's not necessarily oracular in the sense that it's trying to predict things about reality. It's more so trying to get at the core of what is going on inside of you and why and whatnot. And the sort of the difference between a ritual art kind of practice is it's like self-psychology as opposed to just kind of viewing the self from... A strictly analytical lens It's sort of performing the aspect Of the self that needs understanding It's like you wouldn't try To analyze someone before they Gave you something to analyze yet we kind Of try to do that with ourselves when we're like Trying to figure out like what's going on why am I Feeling this like what is the what's the Problem where where was I traumatized you Know instead of just Mm -hmm. letting it Letting it be what it is we do this A lot in NLP with the core transformation Practice you come you bring a part Of yourself to yourself And you say, we're here to understand each other. You kind of give it space to be itself before you then go to try to integrate it or do anything with it. You know, you don't just try to get rid of the thing. You you have to give it space. So I sort of am am bringing that up because I actually forgot why I was bringing it up. But I,
1: you know, in a world where technological unemployability looms over us so much that People like Bill Gates and Yuval Harari are writing about the return of religion as a game, as like a ritual preoccupation for people who need a need a sense of purpose and engagement and have literally nothing else that they can do of economic value, that this is the kind of thing that like, yeah, like ritual art might be the meta modern Post-ironic way of seeing these oracular practices, like it both is yeah. and is not, and you yeah. learn through enacting them and so on. I mean, that's kind of where I. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I wanted. To, I remember now. Thank you. I wanted to give a specific example about the difference between uh, where holding the scientific lens on a thing versus holding the non-scientific lens or holding the symbolic lens on a thing or whatever. With ritual art. So, like, from a scientific lens, I guess you could say that the my explanation of it is that you, you have these habits and these ways of thinking and viewing and sensing that, that have built themselves over time. And then you have the story that sort of parallel to it. So you have the hardware, I guess you could say of your neurology and your biology and your genes and whatever and just like all of the different elements that come together and then you have your concept of that you have like sort of the physiological response that is an emotion and then you have the label for the emotion and then you have the stories of all the times that you've ever felt that emotion and then you from that create what does this emotion mean and then from that you respond so there's this like a lot of layers that are very much uh linked to each other that we weirdly separate or that we kind of think of in, in a binary terms. Uh And with something like ritual art, it's kind of like bridging those, bridging that kind of gap of those things. Like to give a, a more specific example of, a particular community that I'm a part of that I would call a ritual art community, even though that's not what they refer to themselves as. I named it that. (laughs) It's I have this friend who runs a weekly songwriting competition. I think I actually added you to the yeah things got a little noisy in that it got weird and and you were like yeah i'm done (laughs) yeah Yeah. it was just like i I would love to be a
1: part of it it looked really fun but then it also it's
0: not normally that crazy either it's usually quiet up until the day of submission and then everyone submits but the there was like a weird sometimes things get weird in that chat and people just kind of do a free-for-all and and it, it can be annoying but For the most part, it's quiet. It's just you were there at a bad time, I think. Uh, Uh, So I'm sorry about that. But no, that's fair. If You got to do you. you. So yeah, no no (laughs) hard feelings there. But um, the ritual piece is that it's a continuous practice. It's an ongoing practice. It's an observation of the artistic creative process. And through that sort of commitment to that, rather than just kind of being like I'm going to write a song now randomly and it's going to be good like or it's going to be bad and it's going to you're going to you know you're forced to observe yourself in a neutral way so you kind of detach from I think a lot of artists fall into this trap where you kind of you deta- you, you fall into this trap of ad- identifying with your art when you're doing it all the time it gets so boring that you mm-hmm. can't really identify with it and it's so variable that you can't really identify with it and you have to stop yourself from getting into these habits you have to stop yourself because you will get into habits you will start playing the same riff for every song you will start using a lot of the same words and you have to sort of observe what your tendencies are and the the sort of detachment that comes from getting bored with your own self expression um if you can sort of power through that, which can be difficult because boredom feels shitty and it's a, one of the worst <laughs> feelings ever, in my opinion. But if you can kind of sit with that frustration of, of, of getting bored with yourself, you can actually see yourself. And from there you can make decisions that you might not be able to make if you weren't conscious of those habits. And so that's a very interesting sort of thing. And then so you have this sort of scientific explanation of habits, from like a, just a materialist biological perspective that I won't get into because I'm not a biologist. I have a very loose understanding of it. And then you have the narrative piece, you have the construct piece, you have the conceptual piece, and you can kind of see how the two come together. But not if you're married to any specific one as the right one. You can't see the relationship between the two of them if you're choosing sides. Mm. And that's, so that's my really long winded Explanation.
1: (laughs) Uh, You brought up up boredom, and I've had a kind of a, I don't know, a troubled relationship to boredom. In that, (laughs) you and I, and probably everyone now forever, lived in a world that is so. To consider the amount of effort involved in absorbing our attention, Mm -hmm. getting the amount of intense arms race conflict for you to play this m- freemium mobile game instead of this other one or like just I know I'm not alone in being someone who has thousands and thousands of unread bookmarks these are things that I was like I'll get back to this and yeah. you can't you know that, that was like one of the premises of this show was Doug Rushkoff's Future Shock which is precisely that like the animal is never going to catch up to the machine in that respect. So at any rate, we have the, the luxury of not having to be bored. Mm -hmm. And like, I always thought, Oh, bored people are boring from someone else's point of view. It just seems like, Oh, like I tell this to my daughter, I'm like, Oh, you're, Mm -hmm. you're bored. Well, you're not really, Mm -hmm. you're not challenging yourself to come up with something to be interested about the situation you're in, Mm -hmm. you know? And if like you get good at that, you never get bored. You're just like endlessly right. fast, you know. You're like Spock. I fi- I watched head to tail. I watched the original Star Trek series recently, like the summer, as a as a mm-hmm. historical uh, project. That again, Mitch Mignano kind of encouraged because that's the way that he consumes media. Is he's yeah. like, oh, this is a primary source. I'm going to go back and play all of the Zelda games.
0: Whoa! Starting
1: in eight bit, and just I'm inspired. Yeah, I was like, that's another Capricorn dude right there january 18th like you know yeah. the apotheosis of capricornitude but at any yeah. rate so oh uh, that's
0: that's capricornitude right there yeah so
1: <laughs> you know i will diligently put one yeah. foot in front of the other and make it through the entire uh. star Trek. so there's this whole thing there's like a running <laughs> joke where you know at first season of the show he's like fascinating and people loved it and so it got um. reinforced and so he's there's like every episode he's like fascinating and then eventually (laughs) they start writing kirk in where he's like talking to spock he's like you might even say it's fascinating with like that (laughs) pregnant little thing there so it becomes a it's like a proto quick meme type thing anyway it's also pretty clear that spock he's really really good at controlling his mind but he's also it is ponfar where they go into like a mating frenzy So there's that whole, it's almost like a Freudian thing where it's like, there's every seven years, there's a period where he has no control over himself. And this is a complete ingrown hair of a comment. But the point being that like what you just said, which is boredom is an opportunity to get a fresh perspective on you. I realize that the decision not to be bored, the decision to constantly pursue, you know, some object of interest it's easy now, mm-hmm. but it also makes other things hard. There's something about like it functions as a kind of incubator bubble or something. Mm-hmm. Here's a great example. I was just reading this thing on Twitter about, you know, a straight woman goes into a gay bar in order mm-hmm. to experience what it's like to be a man among women because they're used to being sort of received in a particular way and like getting attention. And then like the gay men don't care about you as a straight woman in that Mm -hmm. way. And so, or like the opposite was also true of men going into a gay bar to get the kind of attention that women are like overwhelmed with constantly. Mm -hmm. And so you learn something about this invisible context that we're always carrying around with us that we don't see Mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, like, yeah. So there's something about like boredom. If you never allow yourself to be bored, then you're kind of just like a hot chick that just lets the global entertainment monster buy you drinks all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you never like go into the gay bar and like see yeah. see yourself from a different angle.
0: Well, so I think that boredom can be an indication of a couple different things. It can be an indication that, like, things need to change. It can be an indication that one is actually... This is just personal experiences that I've had with being bored. Sometimes boredom comes up because I'm afraid like my fear of commitments kind of showing up so it's like oh I'm bored to try to motivate like I get bored t- my one of my like quotes of myself that I have that I'm like oh damn like not to chew my own horn but that's good is that like the mind is a trickster spirit so like I have observed my own mind try to get out of and this is not unique to me obviously but I have absorbed my own mind try to get me out of uncomfortable situations by just escaping into these ideas and these delusions and these these narratives that are so not real, just to not have to experience the discomfort. And it's very interesting to observe that when it's just the same emotion can be weaponized to that end as a means to that end. And so like boredom can kind of show up as like I'm trying to avoid the discomfort of the commitment that I am now in. So I kind of like sabotage the commitment by being like, oh, it's not interesting enough. Like whatever boredom can be an indication that like, I actually do need to change my circumstances. It can be masking anxiety. Like it's, it's just very, there are a lot of different, I guess (laughs) this is kind of out of left field and unrelated entirely, but it's got me thinking about, well, I guess it's related to some stuff we've been talking about today in regards to narrative and like, how we have a narrative and then we have like the actual sensory experience and, and the connection between the two. I, I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, I Um Yeah. <laughs> so let's land it because this
1: has been super fun, but yeah. it's clear that both of us are getting a little spun out. Um <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to know, because we did talk about the past, present, future, tarot reading, and you clearly have thoughts about the, the nature of the future and your relationship to it. And so it just feels like a good opportunity to like contribute to the collection here. Your thoughts about dialogue with the future as though it were something that exists now and rather than something that will come to be right mm. you know something that already is that is influencing us that is influencing our past mm-hmm. and some people find this really easy and they they live in this vein all the time and others don't but like i'm curious what is the nature of your relationship to the unborn people who may or may not be listening to this conversation you know at such time as everything that we're saying becomes completely like banal and Child's Play, you know, and it's like, are they like, oh, remember when, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Do you think about, like, what you would say to the future, what you would want to know from it? Or you can take it more Hmm. broadly than that, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I have, like, an answer for that specific question, because I've never really considered it, but I do think of my relationship to the future as... It's very similar to my relationship with the past because the future is the past that hasn't happened yet. And the past is really just a concept or a construct that we've created of things that have happened. It's like the story that we've created about things that have happened to us is what we're relating to. We're not relating to the literal things that had happened, you know, because they're gone. They're, They're finito. They don't exist. Um, And what's really cool about the future, I think, is that the seeds of the future already exist. So there's the whole, like, recognition of emergence piece and and the becoming piece that you kind of mentioned earlier. My relationship to the future is relating to it as sort of, like, a fetus. It's not the future yet, but we know that a fetus is going to eventually become a baby if everything goes correctly. We know that the things that are happening now are going to become something else at some point. And so that's how I kind of like to relate to it is like, (laughs) what is the pre-future or the proto-future as, so to speak, which, you know, is really just like a fancy kind of douchey way of saying the present, but, (laughs) uh, (laughs) but it helps me to relate to the present as not its own, as something that's connected to something bigger than itself. And it helps me to be connected to something bigger than myself and I hope that answers your question. This conversation yeah. was so fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. It's, uh, I think uh, more and more, it seems like people are kind of just native to a longer now or something. Yeah, You know, yeah. you might dig the conversation I had with Carrie Welch, episode 45 mm-hmm. of this show, where she's talking about dogs not being drawn into the pace of human life in civilization and so that's why dogs are capable of like sinking into a longer present whereby things that occur in what we think of as the future are happening for them right now and so like that's how the dog knows how you're coming home Mm -hmm. because you're already home to the dog it's not like it's it's not dog telepathy or whatever it's like they're just capable due to the fact that they're not ensnared in all of this symbolic and mimetic BS of just like detecting that something, you know, certain emotionally relevant thing is about to happen or whatever. Anyway, Mm -hmm. this has been super fun. I'm glad we did this. (laughs) I apologize to those of you who expected more structure in this conversation. This is like a spin glass for physics nerds, you know, where like a magnet is completely disordered and so it has no poles But it's still, all the little pieces of it still, you know, they're still (laughs) pointing somewhere. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, awesome, Scout. (laughs) Where are we sending people to find you and and shower you in adulation and uh, opportunity?
0: (laughs) Well, you could find me on Facebook. I think that that's probably the best representation of... What I'm kind of about my Instagram is more for the purpose of like marketing. It's it's weird. It's kind of like my Instagram is my like a foreign human that I don't really recognize. (sighs) But if you're looking to work with me professionally, that's the place to go. Whereas like Facebook is more like, do you want to hear my random thoughts? Come on by. And then I guess you could also email me at wundersign at gmail dot com. Which if you don't know how to spell that, I will send it to you. Michael, so you can like put oh, write it down yes.
1: somewhere. W u n d e r s e i n. Although, uh. although I don't know that if you <laughs> if you didn't know how to spell that, then that's the test, and you failed. <laughs> All right. Well, this is awesome. Yeah, you're awesome, and I look forward to one of these days. We'll we'll find uh, an opportunity to put you on a a panel discussion because I think that's really where, like you and I, in conversation alone, are kind of like. Was it like Farnsworth in Futurama, where he's like, "Now, now, perfectly symmetrical violence never solved anything." <laughs> Whereas, yeah. like, each of us, I think, in a larger group, would function as like a kind of essential nutrient, and so I got to like, yeah. put you in there with like a bunch of like real like stuffed shirts and just like watch it unfold.
0: Yeah. Um, I yeah, I've been speaking with Greg Henriquez recently, who is like. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's great. Yeah. The Utah guy. And, like, uh, what I love about my conversations with him is that, like, he's a very, like... By no means is he, like, got a gotta stick up his ass. He's, like, flexible. He's, he's creative and all that. But he has this way of kind of, like, n- being naturally a very structured, organized person that, like, just kind of puts me in my place, you know? Whereas I feel like we kind of just were, like... <laughs> which is great, but I don't know. Some people will get something from that and some people might just be super annoyed, but I guess we'll see. And I'm happy to come on next time and with like more of a methodology too if if that serves the future fossils, fossils, wow, community. <laughs> um Is that a toothbrush? It is. Where did that come from? It's been okay. sitting
1: here on my desk the whole time.
0: <laughs> I okay. this
1: is how I handle my um like I don't have a fidget spinner or- but mm-hmm. I do fidget on these calls. And yeah. so, you know, it's nice to have a pen to twirl or whatever.
0: And, yeah. You know, I've been mute. working on spiraling this around my finger this whole time. Oh sure.
1: yes. Yes. I do lots of that. <laughs> There's, um, yeah, actually, what was I going to say? Like a, a twist tie is yeah. really good. Cause then you can like make little sculptures. And then, yeah. You know, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. Okay. Anybody yeah. made it this far, you're definitely getting an <laughs> NFT. We'll yeah. figure it out all
0: right take care okay
1: love you bye you too bye thanks again for listening to future fossils podcast if you're not already a subscriber smash that button and leave me a glowing review because this is work (laughs) Uh, cut cut no seriously though reach out to me on twitter instagram Join the Facebook group and the Discord server before they become patron only in the new year. And happy holidays.